The text for the sermon this afternoon is 1 Samuel 23, the verses 15 through 18. Let's read those once again. This is the word of God. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Thus far our text. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text of this afternoon actually marks the last time that we hear Jonathan speak in Scripture. The next time we hear of Jonathan, he will lie dead with his father on Mount Gilboa. Now the first time that we hear Jonathan speak is in 1 Samuel 14. As he and his armor bearer act in faith and attack the Philistine outpost at Michmash. There Jonathan had shown that he was a man after the Lord's heart, unlike his father. And here in our text this afternoon, we will again see that Jonathan is a man after the Lord's heart. Now, much has happened to Israel and to Jonathan in the time since he climbed the cliffs at Michmash. And it all revolves around a young shepherd boy named David. The man that the Lord had appointed to become king, the man after the Lord's heart, had arrived on the scene. And these two men after the Lord's heart David and Jonathan, they meet and they form an incredible friendship. It's a friendship that is so strong that even non-Christians can link the two. You, You have David and Goliath and then you have David and Jonathan. Now the main focus of 1 Samuel from chapter 17 onward is largely on David. The young shepherd boy from Bethlehem has been anointed to be king by Samuel. He's played the harp for Saul. He's killed Goliath. He's formed a strong friendship with the friends, uh, the king's son, Jonathan. He's married the king's daughter, Michael. And he's ascended the ranks of the Israelite military. He's become a popular hero in Israel. However, at the same time, Saul has realized that David is a threat to his throne. The threat that he knew would come. The threat that Samuel had prophesied in 1 Samuel 13. And Saul is bent on killing David. And our text of this afternoon comes close to the beginning of Saul's pursuits of David. And it is at this time 
that David receives a visit from his friend Jonathan, the son of Saul. So let us hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ as we find it here in 1 Samuel 23. And I present the gospel to you, I proclaim the gospel to you under this theme. In the midst of trials, the Lord sends Jonathan to help David find strength in God. And we will see three things. We will see, see the need for the strengthening, the means of the strengthening, and the content of the strengthening. The need, the means, and the content. So in the first place then, the need for the strengthening. Now our entire text, each verse, speaks to David's need for strengthening. In verse 15 of our text, we're told that David has learned that Saul has come out to take his life. And we see his location. He is at Horish in the desert of Ziph. Now, Horish means forest. And it appears that David had some type of stronghold in these highland forests which were located some 30 kilometers south of Jerusalem. And so it is here, as our text says, it is while hiding out in these forest highlands that David learns that Saul is after him. Now, we need to appreciate what this meant to David. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 23, David, acting with the Lord's guidance, attacks the Philistines and saves the people of Keilah. Now, when he proposes this to his men, they say to him, in verse 3, they say, Here in Judah we are afraid, how much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? So what his men are saying is, Here in the friendly confines of Judah we're afraid. Now, now you want us to go and go where the Philistines are. You want us to attack the Philistines. So his men are afraid. The stories that we often remember about David running from Saul are not so much the running as they are the eluding, the escaping. We must never forget that David and his men lived in fear. They were in hiding and they were on the run constantly. The words we sang earlier from Psalm 18 come to mind. Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. We read there, The cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, The snares of death confronted me. And then later, verse 16 and 17, David writes, He, the Lord, reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. We must not forget the trials that David had to endure. Now, that David and his men should be afraid is highlighted by two things that happened just before our text. Now, the first event 
is in 1 Samuel 22. And this is where Saul kills all the priests of the Lord. He kills them because he thought they helped David. Now this is important. What's happening here is the battle lines are being clearly drawn. Saul is showing that he is bent on resisting the Lord's plan of redemption. The Lord has said what he will do and Saul is going to prevent that. He knows from Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, that God has chosen someone else to be king in his place. And Saul is now showing that he will do whatever it takes to stop that from happening. You could say we have the present false king over against the future true king. And as we look at this future true king, David, he is shown in direct contrast to Saul. While Saul kills the priests, the sole remaining priest, Abiathar, comes to David for protection. And the Lord speaks to him. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 23. The Lord speaks to him through the priest. Now we also know that David had the prophet Gad with him. In 1 Samuel 22 verse 5, the Lord also speaks to David through the prophet Gad. So David is on the run, but he has the Lord's prophet and the Lord's priest with him. Saul kills the priests of the Lord, and the Lord actually refuses to speak to Saul. Yet Saul is so deluded that he thinks that opposition to him deserves death because it opposes God's interests. So opposition to Saul means death. Even if you are a priest serving in the tabernacle, even if you are appointed by God to be king. We can't help but think here of the Jewish leaders during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. They wish to preserve their place and station. And they ignored all the signs that pointed to Christ, to Jesus being Lord and Christ. They wish to preserve their present false kingdom over against the coming true kingdom. And this is what we have with Saul. He is bent on eliminating David, God's man, because he is a threat to his kingdom. And so the killing of the priests... Chapter 22 signifies an intensification of the battle. Saul's resistance to the progress of God's unfolding of history is increasing. The battle is hot and it's only going to get hotter. And David is afraid. Now the second event that would have made David and his men more afraid is what happened just before our text in chapter 23. And those are the events at Keilah. So David rescues the city of Keilah from the Philistines, but then Saul comes after David, and he plans to destroy the city to get to David. And David learns of this, and he asks the Lord, will they give me over to Saul? And the Lord says, in verse 12, they will. So, not only is David 
on the run, but he can't even count on the support of a town, a city that he has just saved. So David and his men, they flee. They head to the highland forests of Horish. But even there, our text tells us, Saul pursues them. He is after them. Now, it must have struck David, and perhaps it has struck you. Why should David be on the run? He is aligned with God. He is the future king anointed to be king by the Lord. He has the prophet with him. He has the priest with him. God, who will not speak to Saul, speaks to David. Now David has all this. He knows all this. Yet he is on the run. He was so well on his way. His earlier experiences after the defeat of Goliath seem to be more in line with a rational progression toward the fulfillment of God's promise to him, the promise that he would be king. He was slowly but surely making his way towards that place. But now he sits holed up with his men in a forest hideaway. And perhaps we can grasp a little of this in our own lives when suffering occurs or when we experience setbacks. This, this feeling of, I am a child of God. Why is this happening to me? And as we can see from other verses in our text, David appears to be struggling with this question. He appears to be struggling with the fear, with fear and with the certainty. But whether or not he would become king, whether or not God's promises to him would come true. At the same time, we must recognize that David's needs are unique. He is not just any man. He is God's chosen man. The one chosen to, to be leader of God's people Israel. So here he is not just standing at an important place in his own life. But he's standing at an important moment in the history of God's people. Now the needs that David had were, were not part of a need for faith. David shows no signs of weakening in his faith or in his commitment to the Lord. Just a few verses earlier, before our text, David and the Lord are conversing. David is close to the Lord, even in his suffering. Now the need here in our text is of a different character. We can think here of a wearying or a being worn down. David is standing at the beginning of an intensification of his running from Saul. Those heroic exploits, we remember Saul relieving himself in the same cave as David. David taking Saul's spear and water pitcher. And then David's time with, with the Philistines. All this is yet to come. David has a long and hard journey ahead of him. Our minds may jump ahead here and 
think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives, just before he was to undergo the betrayal of Judas, the scattering of his disciples, the betrayal or the disowning by Peter, and then his own crucifixion and death. In Luke 22, the verses 39 to 44, we read that Jesus was in prayer. And he asks, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is where we read of our Lord Jesus sweating those drops of blood in his anguish. All while his disciples slept, unable to help him. Unable to help him at his time of need. The hardest part of our Lord Jesus' work was right in front of him. And our Lord and Savior was in need of strengthening. So David points ahead here to Christ. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But David has no place to rest his head. The king has rejected him. And even among the people of his own tribe, he cannot find safety and rest. He travels from place to place, always under the threat of Saul. The one who would be king of Israel, not received by Israel. We can understand David's humiliation and disappointment and indeed his wearying. And it also points us toward and and helps us perhaps understand a little more the humiliation and disappointment of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we too can begin to understand David's need. Because we too can feel this wearying. Perhaps we struggle to have faith more often we struggle in faith. That is, we believe. But the promises, they seem so far away. This was David's struggle, and this was his fear. God's plan of redemption will always be opposed. Saul is not the only one who is opposed to God's unfolding plan of salvation. And that means that David and us today, we need to find strength in God. And the Lord knows his children. He cares for them. And he provides that strengthening. Let us now turn our attention to the means that the Lord uses to help David find strength in him. Now, it's interesting that the strengthening for David does not come from the prophet or the priest. Both are there with David, or at least have access to him. So the Lord has a number of different ways by which he can strengthen David. But he chooses another way. Jonathan. The words jump off the page at us. Jonathan and David have been reunited. It's a pleasant surprise. However, to fully appreciate Jonathan's presence, 
We need to ask why. Why did the Lord choose Jonathan as the means by which David would be strengthened? How does finding strength in God that comes from Jonathan, what does that mean? How how does that function in God's redemptive plan? What does Jonathan offer and bring that the prophet and the priest do not? Now, there are two levels at which Jonathan is uniquely qualified for this task. Now, the first is on the level of his personal relationship with David. The two are very close. He is David's friend. Now, this friendship with David begins right after David defeats Goliath. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, we read that after David had finished talking with with Saul after the defeat of Goliath. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And then in verse 3 we read, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So this is not just a simple friendship between two men who happen to get along. It's a deep friendship that is cemented with a covenant, and it involves deep respect. This is the love that believers have for each other, and even the love that God has for us, a love that does not seek the self. Jonathan and David had a love that fulfilled the law, one that loved God and which loved the neighbor as oneself. In fact, you might say that Jonathan loved God, and that meant that he loved David. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, lamented that this kind of love seemed to be absent in the society of his day. And this is surely still true today. Love is either simple or it is sexual. But that higher love, the love between friends in God, that is hard to find. And this is the love that David and Jonathan shared. It is a love that is completely bound up in their love for God. It is a love that we are called toward. The Lord Jesus says in John thirteen thirty four, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. David and Jonathan have that love. Now, this friendship between David and Jonathan is also interesting because of the age of the two men. David at this time is probably around 20 years of age. It's about the same age that Jonathan likely was when he defeated the Philistines at Michmash in 1 Samuel 14, some 20, maybe even 30 years earlier. Saul reigned for 40 years. The events in 1 Samuel 14 happened at the beginning of Saul's reign. The events of our text are towards the end of Saul's reign. This this was not a friendship between two young men who happened to get along well. 
No, this was a friendship that shared many of the qualities of a father-son relationship. A relationship of love and respect. So in our text, when Jonathan shows up at that forest hideout of David, he came as an elder statesman. He came as a respected and honored sponsor and defender of David. When Jonathan comes to David, he brings a message of encouragement as one who is intimately close, not simply in an emotional or superficial way, but in a fundamental, solid, and even formalized way. And perhaps we have those relationships. If you do, you are blessed. Someone you look up to, someone you respect, someone who has gone out on a limb for you, told you what you needed to hear, sacrificed for you, imparted wisdom and advice, all within the context of Christian love. A love for God that meant that they loved you. Someone whom you listen to when they speak. Now that is Jonathan for David on a personal level. Jonathan is about to speak, and David wants to listen. (coughs) Excuse me. Yet there is another level at which Jonathan is uniquely qualified to give this encouragement. And that is the level of office. Now this speaks to the historical redemptive uniqueness of the situation. What I mean is we are at, an, at a unique place within the history of God's salvation. David is a unique person within God's plan of salvation. And so the people we have involved here are not just everyday people. These are people who loom large in God's plan of salvation. So this is, there is an incredible degree of uniqueness to the situation and the people involved. Now, we must understand that according to the wisdom of the time, It was Jonathan who should have been hunting David, not Saul. Saul was getting old. Jonathan was the next in line. He was the crown prince. And Saul himself actually says it best. Turn with me, 1 Samuel 20, the verses 30 to 31. Jonathan is defending David to Saul. And Saul, it says there, verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Saul realizes that Jonathan's kingdom 
will not be established because of David. Jonathan is an embarrassment to Saul. His actions go against all conventional wisdom. Instead of trying to kill David, the threat to his throne, he is coming to encourage David to help him find strength in God. Now it's incredible when you realize what Jonathan has been moved by God to do. In our text, Saul and Jonathan are are closely identified. Three times Jonathan is linked to his father. He's called the son of Saul. At the same time, they're starkly contrasted. Saul seeks David's life, resisting God's plan of redemption. Jonathan helps David find strength in God and submits, submits to God's plan of redemption. And Jonathan has been doing this from the start. In 1 Samuel 18, after they first meet, what is mentioned, notice verse 4, what is mentioned right after we're told that Jonathan loved David as himself? 18 verse 4, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The clothing and weapons of war of the crown prince, the uniform of the crown prince, has been given to the shepherd boy. Now some have gone so far to say that Jonathan here, in 18 verse 4, is abdicating the throne. And this is surely something of the truth here. There is surely something of that here. Jonathan immediately sees that there is something special from the Lord in David. Jonathan is making a statement. Jonathan recognizes something special from the Lord in David. And then in 1 Samuel 20, we see this deepened and broadened. Jonathan promises David that he will find out if Saul really wishes to kill him. And then later he helps David escape from Saul. So Jonathan continually shows himself subjecting himself to God's will, to God's man. To the one God has anointed. And he not only moves out of the way, he paves the way. He is like John the Baptist, preparing the way for Christ, the anointed one. And again, our minds can drift to Christ as he's praying in that garden in the hour of his need, as he sweats those drops of blood. Christ did not have 600 men at his side. His men slept while he suffered in need. And Christ did not have a Jonathan, a trusted friend who understood him, and who loved him, and who fully realized who he was and what he was to do. In Christ's hour of need, there was not a single person 
on earth from whom Christ could receive strengthening. In Luke 22, verse 43, we're told that an angel had to be sent from God to strengthen him. So what a gift Jonathan's friendship was to David. What a beautiful use of means by the Lord. Jonathan, whose name means gift of God. The presence of Jonathan would have spoken volumes to David, personally and in the context of God's plan of redemption. Jonathan, as a means of strengthening could have strengthened David even if he could not speak, even if he was too old or weary to walk. Beloved, we never have an excuse not to be a means of strengthening. We never have an excuse not to be a tool in the hands of God by which He strengthens His children. Even if Jonathan did not say a word, his very presence would have deafened all the voices of doubt and would have strengthened feeble knees. But Jonathan does speak. And that brings us to our final point, the content of the strengthening. Now the content of the strengthening revolves around certainty. It revolves around the certainty of God's redemptive plan and His promise to David. The strengthening doesn't focus on the means. It doesn't focus on Jonathan. It focuses on God. The point of the strengthening was not to make David strong on his own, some some type of positive self-talk. No, it was to make him strong in relation to the Lord. In God. That means that Jonathan helped David find strength in God, from God, with God. Whatever problems David had, he could withstand them with strength from God. And so the content of that strengthening in God that comes by the means of Jonathan is found in two forms in our text. Now, the first form is his words. Jonathan begins with a command He says, Do not be afraid. And he then qualifies his command with the reasons. And these reasons echo and make more explicit what his very presence had already said. He says, My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. And even my father Saul knows this. So the central message is, You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. And this is, this is an enclosed by or bracketed by two statements about Saul. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. Even my father Saul knows this. So there is a certitude to those central words. The one you fear, Saul, he will not touch you. And he actually knows the truth himself. What's incredible is that the next chapter, 1 Samuel 24, 20, Saul says these exact same words. To David. So the truth is, David will be king and Jonathan will be second to him. Jonathan is saying, God's promise will not fail and I will submit to you. Jonathan is submitting 
to God's will, and that means submitting to David. Jonathan comes to David, God's man, and he brings the word of God. He says, God's word is true. Here is God's word for you. And he moves David to be strengthened by God's word and by God's promise. Now the second form of the strengthening is found in the covenant that is made immediately after Jonathan's words. In verse 18 we read, The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Now the question that comes to mind is, what kind of covenant was this? What were the terms? What did they, what did they agree on? Now we're not told in our text itself, but we can get a sense of what was said by looking at the other covenants that Jonathan and David made. Now they made three, including the one in our text. And each one is made in the context of Jonathan attesting the Lord's choice of David as king. Now the first one was that covenant made in 18 verse 3 where David receives the clothing and and weapons of of Jonathan, his, his uniform, so to speak. Now the second covenant is in 1 Samuel 20 verse 16 and it is described in most detail. It was made in the context of David and Jonathan realizing that Saul was bent on killing David. That's where Jonathan helps David escape. And then Jonathan, as David is leaving, they make a covenant. And Jonathan asks David to show him unfailing kindness. This is verse 42 of chapter 20. Unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live. So that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Now a couple days later. Jonathan reminds David of this covenant and he says, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. It's fascinating. The crown prince is formally with a covenant oath asking the hunted servant to protect him and his family forever. So the covenant made before the Lord in our text would then be the third covenant and it would appear to be a renewal of the covenant that we read of in 1 Samuel 20 verse 16 and verse 42. So not only does Jonathan bring strengthening in the form of words, assuring David that he will be king, but he follows up these words by holding David to a covenant that is predicated, that is based on David and his descendants being kings. So God's plan of redemption is so certain that Jonathan looks for his own life and the life of his children In that certainty, what a testimony to David. In the midst of his trials, his fears, his weariness, 
his doubts of whether or not God's promises to him would actually come to be. In the midst of all of that, he hears these words, he sees this act. How he must have found strength in God. Jonathan so strongly professes his faith in God's future for Israel that it must have made David weep. And what a testimony to us today. We hear this message today and it it speaks not only to the fellowship between believers whereby God strengthens His children in Him, but it speaks to the certainty of God's plans for us, His people. Speaks to the certainty of His plan of salvation in Christ, which also gives us strength in Him. With Jonathan, to use the words of that covenant, we can look to David's descendant, David's great son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can find the unfailing loving kindness of the Lord and life everlasting in Him. God has given us that firm promise in His Word. We will have life everlasting with Christ. It is a sure promise that comes in His Word. God's plans for us in Christ are firm and certain. They are true and certain. And we can be certain that He will be faithful. And that He will bring them to fulfillment. We all have needs. We all have struggles. We all have times when the promises of God seem so far away. And the Lord knows this. He knows His children. And He cares. And He supplies what is needed. In His love for us, He provides the means and He provides the strengthening. He has done it in the past. He does it today and He will do it in the future. Love the Lord. Trust in His promises and the certainty of His redemptive plan in our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, through the renewing work of His Holy Spirit, all help one another find strength in God to the praise of His glory.